I should just begin by scaling down expectations and saying I'm not going to look at post-colonial women's writing. I'm just going to look at Caribbean women's writing today. Um, this, this project may expand beyond the Caribbean, but there's more than enough to keep me busy at the moment. Um, so... Uh, and I also want to explain that, it, that this paper is part of a larger project um, that I'm working on that I'm calling kind of Quiet Revolutions. And by this, I mean to signal what I think is the continuing importance of learning to read and interpret literary works that operate in a register quite different to some of the more attention-grabbing forms of Caribbean culture. So quietness, then, is a way of conceptualizing the emancipatory potential of literary works in relation to the noise, or perhaps more properly, the noises of Caribbean popular culture, which I'm sure you're familiar with, from Louise Bennett, dub poetry, through to the dance hall, the rude boy. The kind of, I think the political acoustics of that kind of work have been really amplified in recent years. I think that they're now really academically secure. But what seems to be more tenuous is the kind of purchase of the literary, which is now seen, I think, sometimes as being less readily countercultural. Um, by this, um, I kind of what I'm trying to do is keep alive some of the goals of what I see as the quiet revolution of Caribbean literature, going right back, really, to the beginning of the 20th century. You know, how do we build conditions for better lives? What does it mean to have better lives? You know, what does it mean to construct the project of the self or to undo that project, to structure empathy, solidarity, to expose the grounds for political action? I think that those are questions that are more linked now to the agendas of popular culture, and I want to try and kind of rest them back, tug them back for literary scholars, um, and to hold on to a strong sense that literature does have the capacity to rearrange our understandings of the social and the political I want to uh, kind of hold on to maybe a slightly old-fashioned idea that literary forms and language create a conceptual readiness in us. Um, uh, uh, perhaps, you know, to receive different versions of experience. Uh, the emotional immediacy of literature kind of structuring imaginatively companionable spaces um, that I think will, uh, you know, open up the possibilities for responsible um, solidarity to be imagined. But I'm also aware that literary works may engage certain questions around ethics and politics without announcing clean edges and sharp agendas in the way that they did in the 1930s or the 1950s. So I, the kind of structures of solidarity or recognition or rapport that I'm looking at now are much more uneven, much more everyday, much more messy, even, I think, quite compromised. But I don't think that that should mean that we, we don't attend to them. So I want to make a claim for Caribbean writing, here women's writing, as being an important body of work in terms of contesting the ways in which people have been conditioned to be disinterested or impervious to each other. And I want to read these writings as answering an obligation to those lives that are still unseen, the historically unrecorded, the abused, the queer. That's, that's the kind of larger project. And I think it's an important claim to make at this historical juncture because at the moment Caribbean writing is being pulled, uh, it seems to me, in two very different directions. And without being too earnest or dramatic, I would want to suggest that, that this is a really important moment for Caribbean literary criticism. In part, that's because the noises of popular culture seem to claim more audience. But also, I think it's because there's been a real divergence in terms of interpretive communities. 
between those that have been shaped by the diaspora and in metropolitan centres and those that are shaped within the Caribbean itself. I mean, you just, I just have to walk around the bookshops here to see, you know, shelves and shelves of Kincaid and Dante Cat and Juno Diaz. In the Caribbean, there's Lovelace's Brobra. I mean, it's a very, very different version of the literature circulating in the two places. But also, I think we could characterize it by a different critical and political sensibility, and that's what I kind of want to reach towards. And I think the divergence has happened, has come about largely because Caribbean narratives and theories have been widely used to theorize new forms of identity thinking. They've been used as kind of emblematic of post-colonialism, so that Caribbeanness becomes a sign of unfixed belonging, of kind of, you know, a world in which we're nowhere and everywhere. And obviously there are kind of obvious problems for delinking, you know, migration from, um, migrancy from the history of migration. I think there's also a bigger problem here that the Caribbean and Caribbean narratives have come to serve something other than themselves. They've come to serve global discourses. And obviously this telescoping of the Caribbean with the human condition has been most pithily phrased by James Clifford in his We're All Caribbeans Now Living in Our Urban Archipelagos. And that may provoke a very powerful image, but where does it leave real Caribbeans living in the real Caribbean? That's a question that's obviously much more pertinent to us all after the recent earthquake in Haiti, which I think drew the world's attention back to what it might really be to be in the Caribbean. So in pointing to the quiet revolution of the literary then, I'm also trying to resurrect the idea that Caribbean writings matter for themselves as part of an engaged, located discourse. In other words, I want to acknowledge the pull towards place that I think has been backgrounded by black Atlantic and diasporic critical energies. More than this, while those energies have plotted the Caribbean almost always as a place where the axes of roots, R-O-O-T-S, and the axes of roots, R-O-U-T-S, I think they've been the dominant axes around which Caribbean literature has been plotted. I want to just suggest some different ones. Um, and, and for today's talk, I want to think about an axis of which rights-bearing discourses are plotted alongside what I want to call responsibility-bearing discourses. And, and I'd want to do that in order to find within the writing this internal coalitional dynamics, what I think is an enduring and substantial concern for the life of others. To my mind, one of the most valuable continuities in Caribbean women's writing is its insistent representational generosity, its recognition of others' presence and participation, and therefore, I think, always the conditions for the possibility of parity. This is clearly an important ongoing project in the Caribbean to forge neighbourhoods, communities, a people. And that's always a project that's imaginative. As Walcott Shabin says in his brilliant early work, The Schooner Flight, I had no nation now but the imagination. The Caribbean is an inventive place, a place remade by the ragged, ruptured history of colonialism and the brutality of the plantation economy. The differently marked arrivals of Africans, Indians, Chinese, Irish, Syrians, various European groups who were brought to the region as part of forced, misled, opportunist migration meant that the region, in a way that's more pronounced and extreme perhaps than anywhere else on earth, it meant that those relationships between people and place was discontinuous, layered, precarious, and often, unfortunately, competitive. 
As a consequence, the efforts to make a people are inventions that must consciously style and structure rather than discover or assume belonging. You can see that in all of the mottos. You know, the virtual community, westindia.com has the banner, all of we as one family. You know, this notion of constructing all of we as one, out of one many, all of the aphorisms. So on one hand, I want to pursue this interpretive focus on the factoring in of other lives because I see it as related to the ongoing, albeit unruly, process of imagining and inventing a people in Caribbean societies. But I also see it as an important challenge for feminist reading. Clearly, one of feminism's most urgent epistemological efforts has been to enable and to promote the conditions for solidarity between women. But since the 1980s, when Western feminism had to acknowledge its often acute blindness in relation to race, ethnicity, sexuality, etc., and at the same time, post-colonialism had to confront its imperviousness to gender, or a lot of it anyway, the most prominent juncture, I think, between feminism and post-colonial criticism has been the meeting point of anxiety about those questions of speaking for, of, alongside. In other words, I think that what they've had most in common is a crisis of how to structure solidarity across difference. Spivak's 1988 essay, Can the Subaltern Speak?, may be seen to be the eye of that theoretical storm. It was clearly a vital and vitalizing intervention that provokes a new mode of questioning within projects that sought to recover subordinated voices to project ideas of community. But if Spivak's essay was a seismic intervention in terms of pushing at the ethical limits of that mode of scholarship, it was also a sobering moment in delivering what David Scott has called the hard truth that the colonial past may never let go. I think that the shockwaves it caused in relations to fears of complicity with imperial epistemologies, for feminist critics at least, has perhaps lessened our courage. And I think that's a shame because I genuinely believe that feminist practice comes most meaningfully from moments of risk, dissent, debate, rather than consensus and accord. As a feminist critic working on Caribbean material who is both in and of the UK, obviously I've struggled with those anxieties about who speaks for whom. I've been part of a generation encouraged to think long and hard about the ethical problems associated with unvoiced subjects, the privilege of the Western critic. While this self-scrutinizing has arguably strengthened the possibility for a meaningful feminism by doing away with any false innocence or stability that try to shelter under the sign of woman, I think there's also a sense in which I found myself facing others' arguments more than the literature I love, more than the political issues that brought me to that literature. Increasingly, as I felt compelled to work through Spivak or Sylvia Winter, in order to orientate myself to this body of writing, I felt I was being drilled more and more into interpreting critics rather than the world and farther away from the possibilities of changing either. I began to sense that all this delicate manoeuvring may actually be a way of evading my responsibilities to the literary archive. More than this, it may be a way of evading my responsibility to other women and to take the political dimension out of my work rather than to put it in. And I'm thinking here, I don't know how many of you know the work of Sarah Ahmed, when she talks about, you know, the problem with feminism, saying, well, I can't talk about that other woman because I don't know her. It's actually we do know her. When we put on our clothes in the morning, her fingerprints are on the seams. You know, this sense in which to say I don't know is actually 
not to live up to the responsibility we have, the encounters that actually are all around us. And I guess I came eventually to the same conclusion as Adrian Rich, 25 years ahead of me, but in a pre-Spivak moment. There is no liberation that only knows how to say I. There is no collective movement that speaks for each of us all the way through. So wanting to believe that the erosion of confidence in certain paradigms of what we might call identity-based politics has not led to the abandonment of hope for a more just world. And finding that writers were often more supple and sure-footed in their negotiation and accommodation of different lives. I've recently been trying to translate this problem back into the domain of the literary and try to use literary text as a discursive field for the reconciliation of feminist theory and the ideas of political solidarity to see whether writers don't already have a way out of what I think is a potentially paralyzing impasse within kind of feminist theorizing. And what I want to do in the remainder of this talk is to get through as many, I've got four scenes of writing, but I don't think I'll get through them all. I'll get through as many as I can without, um, without making your tummies rumble. Um, to try and open up a new conversation about what political imaginings can be summoned up at the meeting points of Caribbean writing and post-colonial and feminist theory. I want to work with these scenes as consciously kind of messy. I want to see them as deliberate interference on the clean lines that were drawn between intellectual and subaltern, third world writer and first world critic. And therefore to move into conceptual terrain that's more tentative, emergent, and certainly at the moment very unfinished. The beginnings of Caribbean women's writing are a subject of some dispute. When I entered this field a long time ago now, I was told that Caribbean women's writing began in 1970 with Merle Hodges' Crick Crack Monkey. I knew then that that couldn't have been the truth. And since then, I've spent most of my uh, academic energies trying to prove that wrong. Uh, I'm currently trying to uh, gather material for a big collection of Caribbean women's poetry and another of short stories before 1970. So if any of you come across wonderful material, please send it my way. I've got, I've got masses already. But anyway, there's probably little disagreement that the history of Mary Prince, published by the Anti-Slavery Society in 1831, is a foundational text. For princes, for other former slaves, writing was a vital way of producing themselves as subjects. The primacy and urgency of self-representation could hardly have been more real for Prince, who had lived under slavery and its erasure of subjectivity through the categorizing of human chattel and the literally inhuman conditions of plantation life. As the title makes clear, for Prince, writing is history, not just an account of history. It's a practice of being and belonging to history. The debates about the veracity, authenticity, and credibility of Mary Prince's history that, were, that came out subsequent to the publication where people were saying this isn't really hers or it's a pack of lies. Or, I think that they show that, that Mary was clearly under threat as a literate, literary, and legitimate subject. And for that reason alone, it's remarkable that she makes such strenuous attempts to gesture meaningfully towards the lives of other women. Of course, our access to Prince's voice is compromised and mediated. She delivered the text to a woman amanuensis, and then it was likely edited by Thomas Pringle. As is well known, the pressures and limitations that she worked under in terms of recording a history that would serve the abolitionist cause also structured the narrative and its omissions. 
In part, then, the rhetoric of inclusion can and should be accounted for by the sedimentation of this heavily affected, affective register, which underlies the abolition you know, cause. Clearly, Prince's deployment of affect as a zone of connectedness is tactical. Throughout, she invests with this privileged understanding, oh, you and I, we can feel each other. You know, we're women, we have this kind of shared understanding. And that was very um, strategic. You can see by this cover, this, this, the Am I Not a Woman and a Sister, you know, which was trading off the Am I Not a Man, um, that this, this kind of appeal, the supplication, and also this appeal to authenticity. She says throughout, almost as a refrain, hear from a slave what a slave had felt and suffered. Yet this pull on feeling as a vital common denominator that could guarantee some kind of meaningful communication between white and black women who are otherwise, remember, utterly estranged and impervious to each other, or at least white women impervious to black women at this time. I don't think that even this is adequate to explain the constant pausing in that narrative to turn and speak about the other woman. While male slave writings such as those of Equiano and Sancho pepper their, their texts with literary and biblical allusions as legitimating points of reference, Prince squeezes in the details of other women's lives. And I want to argue that she similarly is using that to legitimate herself. Through this factoring in of other lives, despite the fragility of her own claims to self, Prince actually enacts this interesting two-way exchange. So on one hand, she is genuinely extending representational capacity to women whose lives would not be known otherwise. You know, this is the first you know, piece of writing by a black woman to be published in England, so the lives that she describes in it would not otherwise be known. But at the same time, I think she uses an extension towards their life as a way of recalibrating her own. And I'm just going to look at one example. There are lots, but one. Early on in the narrative, Prince discovers that she, has been, she is to be sold by her master, Mr. Williams, in order to pay for his second marriage. It is Betsy, Mr. Williams' daughter, by his first marriage, who breaks the news to Prince and tells her where her mother is living so that she may say her goodbye. For Mary, this sale means the humiliation of public display, the uncovered reality of being defined by economic and ideological frames that can make no account of human suffering and loss. And yet, in her rendering of this account, she emphasizes the pain of breaking kinship bonds, but the voice shifts from I to we, congregating both her mother and her mistress into her realm of distress and focalising the narrative from their perspective as well as her own. Oh dear, I cannot bear to think of that day. It is too much. It recalls the great grief that filled my heart and the wo woeful thoughts that passed to and fro from my mind whilst listening to the pitiful words of my poor mother, weeping for the loss of her children. I wish I could find the words to tell you all that then I felt and suffered. The great God above alone knows the thoughts of the poor slave's heart and the bitter pains which follow such separation as these. All that we love taken away from us. Oh, it is sad, sad, and to be, sorry, and sore to be born. I got no sleep that night for thinking of the morrow, and dear Miss Betsy was scarcely less distressed. She could not bear to part with her old playmates, and she cried sore and would not be pacified. This kind of goes on for a while. By framing her own sale and estrangement as an affective experience 
an effective space or create the, creating an effective space that involves the lives of others. Prince is reconfigured in terms of what she means to others as well as to herself. So in this way, she represents the genuine dilemma of Betsy and the genuine trauma of her mother, but she also draws on these representations in order to endorse and legitimate her own value. Think how much they feel to lose me. So I am important, I matter. So she actually is sort of, you know, reworking her value as a human subject at the very moment when that value is about to be denied through her kind of sale. Okay, to go on to my second example, I don't know how I'm doing with time, I'm okay for a bit. Um, I want to turn quickly to another writer who I think also exceeds that feminist and post-colonial rubric of location by quietly insisting on, on interlocution. And I've only discovered this writer literally two months ago. I was going through the um, manuscripts of the Caribbean Voices program, which very famously launched the career of Naipaul and Samming, uh, Lamming and Selvon and but there were no really women writers to come out of that program, and that's always something that's troubled me. And anyway, I found some really good ones, and, and this is one of them, I think. Um, this is the work of Edwina Melville, a woman writer um, writing in the 1950s who lived in the very remote Rupununi Savannah in what was then British Guyana. Uh, I don't know if any of you know the contemporary writer Pauline Melville. Well, she was her aunt, and she was... Um, very formidable woman, the first woman ever to have a tractor license in Guyana, so apart from anything else. Um, and she wrote a short story called The Voice, which was broadcast on Sunday the 20th of June in 1954. And very tellingly, the story tells about another story being broadcast. And it's very obvious, the first story that Melville submits is about life on the savannah, particularly about the subordinated life of a wife, although interestingly, all of that bit was edited out of the story, but that's another story for another day. Um, but in this story, her first story is being broadcast, and it's very obviously the same story because of the references to it. So in this story, at least, she delivers the woman writer very securely um, into, into place. She's evidently very aware of her radio medium, and she skillfully assembles a lot of acoustic imagery in the story. Indeed, there's a kind of initial silence, uh, which is like a letting down of a backdrop, and then all these other voices come forward. Wispy rags of clouds stretch out across the moon's face. So much space up there, clouds, stars, and a solitary moon. Air, air that is full of voices. Limitless dome of heaven so full of sound. Some men build slender steel pyramids to clutch the sounds out of the sky and transmit them for all the world to hear. Others simply press their hands together and their fingers form a pyramid that points to the sky, not to clutch so much as to pray. The piece draws a careful, respectful symmetry between old and new worlds, reversing the gaze so that the so-called new world of the Caribbean becomes an already occupied old land, shaped by the particularities of the Amerindian people. The story draws self-consciously on the way in which acts of communication, though precarious and difficult, act as a bridge between public and private worlds, between technology and the sacred, and between different people living together. It's Melville's concern to represent these other voices, others simply press their hands, that gives the um, story kind of density. Initially, the voices of the thatch and the heavens are forgotten as the mistress scrambles in excitement to hear the voice of the radio. 
Oh, she prayed, let me find the station quickly. The night was so hot, not a breeze, not a friendly sound. On the range founder, the needle moving slowly, oh so slowly, trying to pick up London, the BBC. Then a voice, the voice, the programme already started, and the reader already halfway through the story, her story, her eyes shining in the glow from the radio's dial. Nancy suddenly sat from her crouching position and shouted, Coco, maquette, call the vaqueros, quick, call them to come. Although her anticipation and thrill at hearing her own words voiced back through this magical device is unambiguous, the broadcast becomes an occasion for community and for the recognition of those others rarely seen or heard in Caribbean literature even today. It's not uncommon to hear that all of the native people in the Caribbean were wiped out, you know, um, if, to read that even today. As they gather around the radio, the Amerindians catch fragments of their world coming from the little box. Only the voice, clear and powerful, coming over, repeating now the names of people and places they knew. While the mistress has sent word of their world to London, the BBC and this radio has sent back her world in her form. And her excitement of her, of her recognition, both from far and from near, she wants them to recognise her as well as the BBC, is, is made palpable by the narrative. For the mistress, the broadcast voice of the radio makes thrilling and significant connections between her life and the distant motherland. And there's a moment in the story where it flashes up on a portrait of the Queen. So there's a sense of her yearning to be recognised by England. However, having ensured that the writer has her moment of recognition, the story tells us how the boys... For, for the boys, that connection remains immaterial. Their bearings are set firmly on the world they inhabited. As the batteries of the radio fade, the mistress's distress is kind of set in contrast to their laughter. They, they laugh softly and leave. The simplicity of this piece and its gathering up of emotional intensity only to deliver disappointment and dispersal, I think is it, it kind of delivers an affectionately knowing portrait of the fragility of Caribbean connections, both back to the motherland and also between different communities trying to live together. I think it also provides a subtle critique of the yearning towards voices that are far away and this sense that actually there may, may be Caribbean subjects who are deaf to the sounds of their own place. You know, she's so concerned with tuning into London that she doesn't hear the thatch rustling. In fact, Melvin was so filled with urgency to make those other lives known that she seems to have abandoned her literary aspirations. She became the MP for Guyana's Region 9, representing these people. And the last thing she published was called A Simple Storybook of the Savannah Lands. So she became kind of almost anthropologically um, inclined towards them. Okay, I'm going to make a leap forward now um, to two recent novels, or maybe just one. Um, not going to let you see that yet. Um, the first is Rama by Espinay's 2003 novel, The Swinging Bridge. Does anybody here know that? No? Oh, yeah, great, fantastic. Um, it's a narrative which is acutely conscious of the demands for historical redress, right? <laughs> the prologue describes the crossings made by Indian women from Calcutta to Trinidad and opens with the words, it is an untold story. Without pause, it begins to tell that story. The narrative voice speaks with assurance and detail. The year is 1879, and the women have been brought by train from Benares to the port of Calcutta. It speaks of particular dates and makes references to laws and historical records. 
offering a very visual image of the ship and its new passengers. These are the Indian indentured laborers who came to the Caribbean after the emancipation of the African slaves. The narrator gradually zooms in to offer an intimate family portrait, my own great-grandmother, Gainda, crossing the unknown of the Calipani, the black waters, that lie between India and the Caribbean. This shifting between the long and short lenses of history occurs throughout the narrative, and the narrative really does try to get involved in the act of telling the history of a people as well as a family. You know, there's a real sense in which there's a history that's been lost to literature. And it's true, in the literary history of the Caribbean, Indian Caribbean women's writing is a fragile entity. Despite the towering figures of Naipaul and Selvon, writing by women was very late to appear. The first known novel published in 1990 by Lakshmi Pasoud, called Butterfly in the Wind. It's also true that there's been less feminist scholarship on Indian women's lives, and that Indian women in the Caribbean have had a very fraught relationship to feminist organising by women of African descent. You know, again, I'm trying to gesture these problems of solidarity. In many ways, this novel almost vibrates with the charge of bringing this neglected past and this neglected politics to light. It's an overtly feminist novel. The novel manages to construct the history of her maternal line looking back 200 years. And to do so, it confronts both the historical silence that was insinuated around indentured women. It wasn't that, I mean, obviously Indian women weren't supposed to travel on their own. They were supposed to be married, so they were seen as being inauspicious if they traveled. They were either widows or they were prostitutes or abandoned wives. There was always this kind of suspicion asserted around, around their morality, around their identity. So she, she confronts that. She also confronts the willing amnesia of her mother on the subject of this figure, her mother says, oh, she's a low-class kind of person. She's an old beggar woman. She doesn't want to, to reconcile to her. She's a shadow whose fuller history threatens to adulterate her own claims to good Indian womanhood. Importantly, Espinay and her protagonist, Mona's explicit project, and this is a quote, to replace the pages torn out from the family history, entails confronting lots of forgetting, of domestic violence, of drunken rage, of what in the Caribbean is called outside children. And yet, while the recovery of the Indian Caribbean woman, both past and present, is a really vital energy within this narrative, in fact, the narrator is rather too charged, I think. I mean, the narrative kind of hums with this need to, to tell everything. But also, crucially, like Prince and Melville, the urgency and desire to find a way for the self to enter writing and for that writing to be seen as historical practice can and still does accommodate the lives of others. And here, the recovery is of another figure, more minor still, within a West Indian tradition, and that's the queer figure. I'm sure you all know how the problems around homophobia in the Caribbean. The Swinging Bridge addresses the complex issues that inform both the naming and the silencing of the queer subject, and that other taboo, AIDS. Mona finds out that her brother Kello has AIDS, although it's a kind of open secret within the family. And um, all of her kind of going back to Trinidad is also about going back to live the life that he can no longer live. But I haven't got time to go into all of that. But in her naming of Kello's illness as AIDS, and in her acknowledgement of his loving as equal to hers, which sounds something so tame to us, but in this context it's kind of a big gesture, uh, Mona confirms her refusal to live according to the imperatives of shame and secrecy. 
Importantly, though, what sets a limit on her idea of unearthing Kello's buried history, as she ha- she's able to unearth this, femi- this kind of female history of the Indian woman, is that he will not comply. He insists on silence. He's not the bamboo wife, the indentured woman, who can be recovered by her. I wanted to tell Kello that I knew something about love, that I too had risked much to understand it. I knew that loving brought us fully to life, forced us to risk ourselves, and I was happy for him and Matthew. But Kello only stared at me in silence. He was intent on shutting me out. Finally, there is no bridging of this intimate story of love within the familial and national narratives that Mona restores. And I think that's important because... Obviously, at the moment, queerness doesn't have a space within those national narratives. And it doesn't even often have a space within familiar ones. So the imperfect deliverance of his story that can only be insinuated but can't be told can only be kind of find itself through a kind of silence in a novel that's all about disclosure, I think represents how there's still more stories, how actually every time we reach the kind of horizon, there's another vanishing point. There's another history that's yet to be told. Um, I'll just tell you what the other one was, but I won't go into it. The other one was Elizabeth Nunez's novel, Prospero's Daughter, published in 2006, which is a rewriting of The Tempest. And what's interesting about that text is that obviously, I mean, it makes a an intervention in Caribbean literary history because so many people have rewritten The Tempest. And what I read as being an important uh, intervention for Nunez's point is she doesn't place the revolutionary potential in any one figure. She doesn't, you know, like Lamming, have Caliban or Retimor or whoever. And she doesn't, you know, like Winter, have Caliban's woman or like Brathwaite more recently with his Sycorax work. What Nunez does is say that what undoes Prospero's power is the willing, consenting relationship between Miranda and and Caliban, the fact that they recognize uh, each other as equal and that they choose to, to make a kind of alliance. I mean, there are other problems because it kind of reasserts the family, but anyway, we won't go there. Um, but it's worth reading, I think. Okay. Um, so what's so valuable to me about the narratives then is that they demonstrate the kind of ragged edges of the Caribbean and therefore the difficulties of different lives that have to be reconciled to make a people, the kind of imperfections of that and the necessary kind of pauses or silences that are always, I think, going to exist. But it depends how we treat them, I guess. Also, I think they suggest the possibility of a project of belonging and attachment that doesn't need to rely on identitarian or communalist identities. And that's very important for somewhere like Guyana, where, you know, the idea of petition has even been floated, where, you know, the differences seem so irreconcilable. Clearly, during the tumultuous phase of anti-colonialism, the dynamics of decolonization were, by necessity, focused on the recognition of the colonized as fully human, on the struggle towards self-recognition, self-determination. In many ways, I think, our critical agendas were pulled in the wake of that politics. And it was perhaps only once that struggle had been won that the question of how to act in relation to others could begin to emerge. Likewise, we might say that the rush to bring women's lives to the fore in books by Hodge, Kincaid, Marshall, etc., now, now has kind of been successful, perhaps even overly successful in particular ways. Yet while the solidarities that we need to summon today may be more complicated, I think they're probably no less urgent. 
What all, of this, what all of these literary works represent, I think, are historical yearnings. They don't, I'm not trying to, re- to, to argue that they represent fellow feeling as an end in itself. They, they, you know, that affective space that they create isn't, isn't the end point of the narrative, it's the beginning point. Once I recognize you as you, what do I have to do in order to make our lives more equal? Um, Rather, I think their need to negotiate across communities draws attention to the need for coalition as a political structure that makes space for difference and sameness at the same time, a structure that allows for accountability as well as hope. For me, the ideal feminist paradigm. It is this project that seems to form the serious intellectual work of many fine Caribbean writers at the time. And as well as the writers I've spoken about, I think, I'm thinking here of Shani Mutsu, Patricia Powell, Dion Brand... It is these acts of summoning multiple solidarities that I locate as the quiet revolutionary force of Caribbean literature. And I think it's our critical challenge to find a way to speak about their insistence on the need to match responsibility-bearing discourses with the more familiar rights-bearing ones. Okay, thank you.